You come on up. Thank you, Carrie. Hey, I want to invite up Andrew and Yvette Neely. They are going to come and they are bringing baby Gracie. Um, Grace, she is precious. So, Grace, we're so excited to meet you. Come on over. They're going to dedicate her this morning. Um, and just as we always talk about when we have a child dedication, is this is an opportunity for this family to commit their children to the church and say, we want these kids to know and love Jesus, to follow him, um, and they're going to do everything that they can in their power, but they're also asking for your help, right? <laughs> and to, to um, see their children come to know Jesus and to follow him. And so why not, I'm just introduce you guys real quick. So, uh, so this you. is my wife, Yvette. This is Andrew John. This is Grace Eleanor. And then I'm Andrew. Andrew John, I love that. Yeah. And then Grace Eleanor, how are you this morning? Pretty good? Yeah. I have that effect on women. It just happens. <laughs> oh, man, so, so precious. Well, um, we have a couple of questions we're going to ask you guys as we dedicate Grace um, and just ask that uh, God would continue to lead her and provide for you as a family as we do. So the first question is, um, do you commit as you raise her to sharing God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ with her in your home? We do. We do. And then secondly, do you commit to praying for her and introducing her to Jesus in order that she could make a decision on her own to follow Jesus? Always. Amazing. Um, so now, church, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I have a couple of questions of commitment for you as well. Um, as you have the opportunity to love and support this family, the Neelys, and specifically um, to care for and encourage baby Grace, um, would you commit to praying for this family? And as you have opportunity in children's ministry, potentially, or small groups, or any other interaction you might have with the Neelys, um, would you, as you have opportunity, share um, God's word in truth and the gospel with her as you have opportunity? Thank you. Amazing. Well, we're going to pray for her and pray for you guys as a family and trust that God's going to lead this little one into his grace. Lord, we are so thankful um, for the resources that you provide for us as a family, Lord, in a greater family of you in the kingdom of God and in the church. Thank you for Andrew and Yvette and their desire to honor you with their marriage, their desire to honor you with their um, children, and ultimately, God, to point them to you. And so we do pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to Andrew John and to Grace in ways that would be so clear and compelling that they would understand why they were made that they would understand what purpose you have for their life and that they would embrace a faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that um, these children, God, would grow to know you in meaningful ways and ultimately, Lord, make a, um, a lifelong faith decision to follow you and that we would someday enjoy them forever in heaven because of the work you're doing in their lives. And so, Lord, we commit this family to you. We commit to loving them and encouraging them in the process and ask that you would be honored by this family. And it's in your precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming. Such a treat and a blessing. Well, as we jump into Ecclesiastes, it uh, just goes downhill from here, guys. Sorry to break the news to you, but... <laughs> There was this really interesting report that I, I read um, a couple weeks ago. It's by the Gallup World Poll. Have you ever heard of the Gallup organization? They do these statistical studies. So they actually every year release a 
a poll on global happiness, which sounds like a joke, but they're very serious about it. And they have these metrics in which they use to kind of measure and evaluate how happy different countries are. And they present it in a ladder, like an image of a ladder with all these rungs on a ladder. And it's in 10 rungs. And the top rung of the ladder is they're asking for people to evaluate if you're living your best life, basically, or the the best possible life you could live being rung number 10 and the worst possible life you could live being rung number one. And so they ask people to evaluate that and then they um, average it over a three-year span and then they take a different sample each year so that they get this really nice balanced approach to evaluating how happy a country is, which sounds silly, right? But they really do believe that this is a tool at, at which they can evaluate how happy and prosperous different countries are. They use different variables like um, the perception of corruption, which you would understand, you know, that if, the, if you perceive your leadership to be corrupt, then you'll be less happy or maybe living less of a best life. They evaluate things based on generosity or freedom to make life decisions. So what kind of autonomy you have as a citizen, the health or the life expectancy of the citizenship, the GDP per capita, the finances of the country. So all these things, right, are thrown into this pot and they calculate it with some kind of algorithm and say, this is how happy we think you are. And you would imagine that a country like the United States of America, who has all of the freedom to make choices and autonomy, and we have the ability to govern our lives, right? And there's plenty of opportunity and generosity and social support and all these things that we'd rate relatively high, you know, at least in the, the highest percentage. But the surprising number, and this isn't changed in a while, so year over year, this ends up being the same, it's 6.8. So United States rates out of 10, living your best life, 6.8, which maybe that doesn't sound that bad to you, but when I was in school, C's got degrees, not D's. So 6.8, that's a D plus, right? That's not a really great rating. Even the best countries were nearly a point ahead, maybe in the mid sevens. And there was countries just right there with the United States, like Costa Rica, um, Taiwan, um, Czech. They're all just right in the mid sixes, kind of at that D plus rating. And now you're not surprised by that either. You think, okay, well, of course, because these people don't have the right metrics to evaluate happiness and pleasure and what gives us life and meaning and purpose. But you would think that the United States, whose founding documents in the Declaration of Independence, you remember what it says? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of, there it is, happiness. You'd think we'd be happy people. But then we realize that those are not the appropriate metrics, that we have to evaluate our life based on different things. And so we realize there's two different narratives in our world that we could get stuck between if we're not careful. And then at the other narrative, the extreme, we've got this religious system that sometimes has swung in the opposite direction on the other end of the pendulum and pursued what we would call asceticism or the pursuit away from pleasure for the sake of spiritual focus and discipline, right? That's like a Puritanism kind of approach. And we understand, well, that doesn't work either. There's got to be some kind of middle ground understanding of the purpose of happiness and pleasure. 
I appreciate H.L. Mencken is this kind of theologian. He wrote this of Puritanism. He says, a Puritanism, Puritanism is the haunting fear that somewhere, somehow, somebody may be happy. <laughs> it's just like, don't, don't be happy. So we, we come to this, this passage with a question, what's the meaning of pleasure and happiness? And that's the very question that this philosopher in the passage here is going to ask this morning. What is the meaning of pleasure and happiness? He asks in chapter 2. So read with me as we walk through this series of questions and we'll see what he says. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 1 says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and is striving after the wind. Now, before you lose hope and walk right out the door after reading this, let me just remind you a little bit of the context. We looked at this last week as we jumped in. This is wisdom literature. There is, in fact, wisdom found in here. And just as in much of our interactive wisdom that we receive in life through relationship, it often comes in questions, not always in answers. And that's exactly what the writer here, or in this case, the preacher as Gerald introduced to us, the Kohelet, the Hebrew word for preacher or for teacher, or in my case, in chapter two here, I would call it the philosopher, the professor. They're posing questions, a series of questions in order that they might lead us 
to some sort of wisdom. And I think the book is, is here positioned right in the center of the Bible because it asks questions that maybe no other work of literature in biblical text asks so that those answers could be found in the rest of Scripture. In other words, we may not ask questions in this series and arrive on these immediate answers in the verses following these passages. There's not a clear answer in chapter 2 for the meaning of pleasure or the meaning of wisdom or the meaning of work. It's a series of questions that are thoughtful and provoking in order that we might sit for a minute together this morning and join the Kohelet in his line of questioning. And, and we may not presume that the questions will be answered and possibly not even answered this morning as we walk away from the text, but rather to sit with the philosophical argue of life's purpose. So let's take a look at his argue here. His first point is the point of pleasure, meaning of pleasure. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Let's go have some fun. He said, I didn't keep anything from my eyes that they wanted. He tested every ounce of pleasure and he had more than anyone ever had come before him in Jerusalem. So this teacher pursued every ounce of worldly gain that you could ever imagine. Live a little, he's saying. Let's test this out. Let's see if maybe this is the meaning of life. Laugh a little bit. Drink. Eat. Enjoy. Maybe we'll take up sailing. Find a perfect little beach somewhere where we can just sit and bask in the sun. Relax. What could be better than this? The meaning of life. Pleasure. Enjoy it all. Have it all. Withhold nothing. Sounds like a hedonistic approach to the way we live our life in much of America. But the teacher becomes bleak very quickly in a turn in verse 2. He quickly says, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Pleasure is vain. What does it accomplish? And again, we see him asking these tough philosophical questions. There's another philosopher, a modern day one. His name is Mitch Robbins. He's played by Billy Crystal in the movie City Slickers. And uh, Mitch Robbins also has a crisis of philosophy when he gets to his 40th birthday and he realizes that life is just vanity. Listen to what he says. He's telling his kids this good wisdom from a dad, right? When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything and you do. Your 20s are a blur. Your 30s, you raise your family. You make a little money and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? Your 40s, you grow a little pot belly and you grow another chin. The music starts to get loud and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. Your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. Your 60s, you have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but now it doesn't matter because you can't hear anything anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating dinner at two, lunch around 10, breakfast the night before, and you spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate in soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? By your 80s, you've had a major stroke and you end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? He says, what is the meaning of all of this? You get to the end of your life and this is all we have to show for it. Certainly there can't be any meaning in pleasure itself. 
It's exactly the question of the Kohelet. And his answer, verse 2, is nothing. It means nothing. It's vanity. It's like vapor. You can't grab it. So go ahead, pursue all the pleasure, but it won't get you anywhere. So then he takes us to a step up question that you think, okay, well, maybe not pleasure. That's fair. That's hedonism, but maybe progress. So in verse four, he goes to the meaning of progress. Maybe it's not just pleasure. Maybe it's building something, right? Verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I built something. I cultivated the ground. I made something of my life. There's progress here. And generally, this is where most of us, you and I, find meaning in life, isn't it? Establishing a family, building, growing a career, a marriage, relationships, wealth, kids, investing, developing, improving, making the world a better place. Work has value. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look specifically at a theology of work that I think will be really helpful. But for the time being, you, you read this and realize maybe he's onto something because I sincerely find meaning in work. Have you heard of the great resignation this last couple of years, 22 and 23? Um, so much of the workforce left. In fact, in the height of the, what they call the great resignation, like an 18-month period between 20, end of 21 kind of through 23, at the height, there was 4 million people leaving their job every single month in the United States, quitting their job, walking out. And on some of the exit interviews and the polls and the discussions that they had with these people leaving their jobs, they found that they were leaving for something of more, what? Purpose, meaning. Maybe my purpose and my meaning could be found in work. And so I would argue, along with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, that there is meaning in progress, is there not? In fact, the end of Genesis chapter 1 says God put Adam in the garden to work the garden, to till the soil, to name the animals. He gave him tasks like pruning the trees, grow, build, Adam, organize, produce, create something, build it. And God saw at the end of his creation sequence in Genesis chapter 1 that everything he had done was good. There's good purpose in work. Uh, but the cynic pops back out to us here in chapter 11. I'm sorry, in verse 11. He says, But behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Answer, is there purpose and meaning in work? Is that the meaning of life? No, it's vanity. Chasing after the sun. Okay, so we don't find the meaning of life in pleasure. That's hedonism. We don't find the meaning of life in, in work. That's vanity, in producing, in increasing. Then the true meaning must be found elsewhere. So we continue reading and realize in verse 12, we've stumbled on something significant. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly 
For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. But then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. In fact, wisdom's better than folly. It's light as is to darkness. Maybe we're getting somewhere. I start reading and going, okay, purpose and meaning, not necessarily in producing something, in productivity, not necessarily in progress, not necessarily in pleasure, but maybe it's found in wisdom. And I begin to recall dozens of Proverbs about wisdom versus folly. Search for her, it says in the Proverbs, as you would search for silver or gold. Buy wisdom and do not sell it, right? Apply yourself to wisdom. You've heard some of these Proverbs. Yeah, wisdom, that's the thing for sure. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 says, this is the currency of the ages. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom for the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compare with her. That's it. Gain wisdom. We don't have to gain things. We don't have to produce things. It must be found in wisdom. So the Kohelet says, I will set my sights on gathering and acquiring wisdom. Not so fast. Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Wait a minute. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Wait, nothing changes? About my life, if I, if I gain the wisdom, the same thing's going to happen. He keeps on going. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. And it starts to unravel. And I think for a minute when I'm reading this in chapter 2, if you're like me, I read through Ecclesiastes, man, three, four, five, six times maybe in the last month. Um, getting my head around what is this guy after and how do we make sense of this without it being a hopeless uh, Sunday every single week. And I come up to this and I think, come on, man, throw me a bone. Like just tuck something in there that's like, oh, but it's this. And so I'm waiting and I'm reading, I'm going through the verses and then look, I come up on verse 17. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and is striving after the wind. Have a good Sunday. <laughs> done. I mean, where do we go from there, right? Like you read that and how are we supposed to make any kind of sense in that? And so the question comes, I'm sure you're asking, why in the world are we studying? These guys are nuts. Like, do they want this church to grow? Or, I mean, we're not going to stick around for very long, right? Here's why. Because chances are you've come to a point in your life where you've asked these very same questions. And if you haven't yet, you will. You'll come up to a point or a season in your life, a circumstance in your life, and you'll say, what in the world is the purpose of all of this? And how do I make sense of this? It's the reason why he's asking these questions. It's the reason why it sits right here in the center of your Bible, because God knows that you and me as finite 
limited human beings will come up to a point where we ask the very question and we find solace in the fact that someone before us has asked these questions and there's a chance, therefore, even if the answer's not right here, there's a chance that maybe someone else has answered it. Maybe there is meaning and purpose in life. Maybe I can find some answers. If you fast forward a couple of thousand years, you come up to this Greek philosophical line of questioning, which sounds very similar. What is the meaning of life? And in Greek, that word, the reason, what is the reason for life or the meaning for life is logos. What is the logos for life? And we have all of these, what we'd call secular philosophers trying to make sense of things and figure them out. And you have two opposing worldviews. One worldview says, this is just a accidental combination of chemical reactions that's taking place in all of these atomic beings And when someone feels something, it's just a coincidental reaction between two chemicals and atoms firing off in your brain to tell you to feel something. And all of those things have very little meaning and purpose other than to drive you towards survival. That's one worldview, right? The other worldview is that there is a creator God who intentionally made you, who has a reason and a purpose that's worth discovering. So when we come up to the Greek philosophical line of questioning of what is the logos of life? What is the meaning of life? It's been answered a dozen ways, but no way has yet been sufficient at discovering the true meaning and purpose of life on this side of the conversation. Until we come up to a first century philosopher And his name was John. And John, in his Magna Carta work, which we refer to as the Gospel of John, writes a letter to all of those who would be asking this question, to all of those who would be swimming in confusion and ambiguity over the meaning and the purpose of what life's existence is truly for. And he decides different than his counterparts, to offer an answer in the very first sentence to his work. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was what? The word, which is the Greek word logos. The reason. The meaning. The purpose. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos, the meaning, the purpose, was with God, and the word, the purpose, the meaning, was God Himself. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And he goes on in this work to continue to remind us that there was a meaning and there was a purpose. And the purpose was God himself creating all of these finite human beings in his image so that he could bestow on him the glory that was found in Christ in the Logos, the reason, and that they could find their meaning and their purpose in becoming like him. And that you could dismiss a former worldview that said this 
is just a chemical reaction. So nothing means anything. And everything on this side of the equation means everything. Every pleasure, every pain, every bit of wisdom, Every ounce of progress means everything because it's done in the image of a creator God. The reason for living, the logos in him was life and the light of men. And the question of the Kohelet in Ecclesiastes is answered with a megaphone in John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the logos, the reason, the purpose. And we start to make sense of everything in life through the lens of a creator who has purpose and who uses every single one of those circumstances to chisel us into his image so that we could know him and enjoy him forever. I appreciate the way that Tim Keller describes this scenario. He says, on the one hand, Without Jesus, nothing means anything. On the other hand, if Jesus is the reason, the logos, then everything means everything. Either everything means everything or nothing means anything. There's two paths to choose. When I acquire knowledge and wisdom, it is not a cellular cataloging system that's incidental in response to an atomic neuron reaction in my brain. It's a tangible, created flesh working together with the Spirit of God to reflect the truth of God to the world around me. And that is the meaning of life. Now, just to prove that this prophet, maybe you could call him a philosopher, isn't totally lost. At the end of chapter two, here's how he finishes Ecclesiastes, or finishes the chapter, I should say. Verse 24 says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat Or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. And the most important word in my mind in this entire chapter, joy. That God has purpose and meaning in your work and in your pleasure as it pleases him. And nothing can be done apart from him. So it's therefore done with him in mind for his enjoyment and for the one who pleases God With God's enjoyment, he gives wisdom and he gives knowledge and he gives joy. That as you find enjoyment in understanding your creator, in understanding how he made you and what he made you for, you will in turn find joy. That all is not lost. All of the pleasure and the productivity, the progress, the wisdom, that is not lost. That's all contributing to this beautiful plan that he has to shape you into something purposeful and meaningful. And the words of Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, stand out clearly for me where it says, You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And Psalm 36, 8 says, You give them drink from your river of delights that we will find fulfillment in God, that he values our pleasure. 
He values his pleasure and ours, his pleasure in us and ours in him. And it is his pleasure to give us pleasure as a fruit of his saving love. There's good news here in this line of questioning, friends. We're, we're going to have to dig for it a little bit as we walk through this book. We're going to have to go searching, but we will find it. And it will be a hope-filled, joyful process to find our purpose in our creator. I want to close with just this benediction from Romans chapter 11. And the worship team's going to come out and we're going to worship together. Just close your eyes maybe and just listen to these words as Paul reflects on this conversation. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we ask for clarity as we read through this ancient text that I believe is targeted straight to our existential questions of existence. And that as we ask these questions, Lord, you would remind us that you have already answered in the purpose and the desire that you have for each and every one of us to come into the knowledge and saving truth of who you are. So may we walk in the fullness of our knowledge of God and may you enlighten these words of scripture to us as we study. In your name I pray, amen.